Christ's replies signified transition of morality from reliance on tradition to reliance on individual conscience, from rule of law to rule of spirit, from prohibition to exhortation. To love God means to listen to the voice of truth and to act in accordance with its messages, to love thy neighbor as thyself. This means not merely to be pleasant, polite, and friendly, but to attribute to the other a value equivalent to the value of the self, which, despite outward appearances, is a representative of God, and to act in consequence of this valuation. This transition means establishment of an active dynamic balance of competing subjectively based motivational demands while maintaining and creatively modifying the social and natural environment. It means fulfillment of personal and interpersonal needs in accordance with metamoral principles rather than in accordance with the demands of power or dogmatic tradition. Thus, the process by which tradition is generated is brought into inevitable contrast with tradition itself. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you, nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two, and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Luke 12, 51-53. This is most truly death of unthinking adherence to authority, for, as in the archaic society, the past rules. Eric Neumann states, In normal times, when culture is stable and the paternal canon remains in force for generations, the father-son relationship consists in handing down these values to the son and impressing them upon him after he has passed the tests of initiation in puberty. Such times and the psychology that goes with them are distinguished by the fact that there is no father-son problem or only the barest suggestion of one. We must not be deceived by the different experience of our own extraordinary age. The monotonous sameness of fathers and sons is the rule in a stable culture. This sameness only means that the paternal canon of rights and institutions which make the youth an adult and the father an elder holds indisputed sway, so that the young man undergoes his prescribed transition to adulthood just as naturally as the father undergoes his to old age. There is, however, one exception to this, and the exception is the creative individual, the hero. As Barlack says, the hero has to awaken the sleeping images of the future which can come forth from the night in order to give the world a new and better face. This necessarily makes him a breaker of the old law. He is the enemy of the old ruling system, of the old cultural values, and the existing court of conscience, and so he necessarily comes into conflict with the fathers. In this conflict, the inner voice, the command of the transpersonal father or father archetype who wants the world to change, collides with the personal father who speaks for the old law. We know this conflict best from the Bible story of Jehovah's command to Abraham. 
Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. Genesis 12.1 Which the Midrash interprets as meaning that Abraham is to destroy the gods of his father. The message of Jesus is only an extension of the same conflict, and it repeats itself in every revolution. Whether the new picture of God in the world conflicts with an old picture or with the personal father is unimportant, for the father always represents the old order and hence also the old picture current in his cultural canon. What principle is rule of spirit rather than law predicated upon? Respect for the innately heroic nature of man. The unconscious archaic man mimics particular adaptive behaviors, integrated, however, into a procedural structure containing all other adaptive behaviors, capable of compelling imitation and accompanied by episodic-slash-semantic representation in myth. Pre-experimental cultures regard the act of initial establishment of adaptive behavior as divine, first because it follows an archetypal and therefore transpersonal pattern, that governing creative exploration, and second, because it compels imitation and therefore appears possessed of power. All behaviors that change history and compel imitation follow the same pattern, that of the divine hero, the embodiment of creative human potential. For the primitive individual, it is the consequences of such heroism and the particular acts themselves that constitute the essence of the past. The process of imitation and abstracted variance thereof, however, allow for the nature of this essence to be continually clarified, until, finally, representation of abstracted but specific heroic actions give way to representation of the process of heroism per se. At this point, it becomes possible for the creative individual to mimic, consciously incarnate, the process of world redemption itself. Law is a necessary precondition to salvation, so to speak. Necessary, but insufficient. Law provides the borders that limit chaos and allows for the protected maturation of the individual. Law disciplines possibility and allows the disciplined individual to bring his or her potentialities those intrapsychic spirits under voluntary control. The law allows for the application of such potentiality to the task of creative and courageous existence, allows spiritual water controlled flow into the valley of the shadow of death. Law held as absolute, however, puts man in the position of the eternal adolescent, dependent upon the father for every vital decision removes the responsibility for action from the individual and therefore prevents him or her from discovering the potential grandeur of the soul. Life without law remains chaotic, affectively intolerable. Life that is pure law becomes sterile, equally unbearable. The domination of chaos or sterility equally breeds murderous resentment and hatred. Christ presented the kingdom of heaven, the archetypal goal, as a spiritual kingdom, which is to say, a psychological, then interpersonal state. This state differed from the hypothetical promised land described in the Old Testament in a number of vitally important manners. First, 
Its construction was a matter of voluntarily chosen alteration in personal attitude and outlook rather than a culmination of material labor and natural resource. Second, it was predicated upon revolutionary and paradoxical reconceptualization of the nature of the goal of paradise itself. Christ's life and words, as archetypal exemplars of the heroic manner of being, place explicit stress on the process of life rather than upon its products. The point of a symphony is not its final note, although it proceeds inexorably to that end. Likewise, the purpose of human existence is not the establishment of some static, perfect manner of being. Man would find such perfection intolerable, as Dostoevsky was at pains to illustrate. Rather, human purpose is generation of the ability to concentrate on the innately interesting and affectively significant events of the present, with sufficient consciousness and clarity to render concern about the past and future unnecessary. Consider the lilies of the valley, says Christ. How they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take not thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take, therefore, no thought for the moral, for the moral shall take thought for the things of itself, Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Matthew 6, 28-34 Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof does not mean live the life of the grasshopper instead of the ant, sing in the summer and starve in the winter, but concentrate on the task at hand, respond to error when committed, Pay attention, and when your behavior produces a consequence you find intolerable, modify it, no matter what it takes to produce such a modification. Allow consciousness of your present insufficiency to maintain a constant presence so that you do not commit the error of pride and become unbending, rigid, and dead in spirit. Live in full recognition of your capacity for error and your capacity to rectify such error. Advance in confidence and faith. Do not shrink back, avoiding inevitable contact with the terrible unknown to live in a hole that grows smaller and darker. The significance of the Christian passion is the transformation of the process by which the goal is to be attained into the goal itself. The making of the imitation of Christ the duty of every Christian citizen, into the embodiment of courageous, truthful, individually unique existence. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake 
shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16, 24-26 Christ said, Put truth and regard for the divine in humanity above all else, and everything you need will follow. Not everything you think you need, as such thought is fallible and cannot serve as an accurate guide, but everything actually necessary to render acutely self-conscious life bearable without protection of delusion and necessary recourse to deceit, avoidance or suppression, and violence. This idea is presented in imagistic form in Figure 61, World Tree of Death and Redemption, which portrays the host as the second fruit of the world tree. Ingestion of the first fruit produced the fall. Ingestion of the second redeems those who have fallen. The negative feminine in the form of Eve hands out the apple in the form of a skull. The positive feminine, in the form of the church, distributes the wheaten wafers that characterize the Redeemer. The incorporation of Christ's mystic body during the ritual of the Mass is dramatic representation of the idea that the hero must be incorporated into each individual, that everyone must partake of the essence of the Savior. Existence characterized by such essence takes place from the Oriental viewpoint on the path of meaning, in Tao, balanced on the razor's edge between mythic masculine and mythic feminine, balanced between the potentially stultifying safety of order and the inherently destructive possibility of chaos. Such existence allows for introduction of sufficiently bearable meaning into blessed security makes every individual a stalwart guardian of tradition and an intrepid explorer of the unknown, ensures simultaneous advancement and maintenance of stable, dynamic social existence, and places the individual firmly on the path to intrapsychic integrity and spiritual peace. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Matthew 7, 24-25 The Alchemical Procedure and the Philosopher's Stone Introductory Note Part 1. As Carl Jung outlines. The Western alchemists followed the scenario, known already in the Hellenistic period, of the four phases of the process of transmutation, that is, of the procurement of the philosopher's stone. The first phase, the negredo, the regression to the fluid state of matter, corresponds to the death of the alchemist. According to Paracelsus, he who would enter the kingdom of God must first enter with his body into his mother and there die. The mother is the prima materia, the massa confusa, the abyssus. Certain texts emphasize the synchronism between the opus alchemicum and the intimate experience of the adept. 
things are rendered perfect by their similars, and that is why the operator must take part in the operation. Transform yourself from dead stones into living philosopher's stones, writes Dorn. According to Gictel, we not only receive a new soul with this regeneration, but also a new body. The body is extracted from the divine word or from the heavenly Sophia. As Mircea Eliade explains, that it is not solely a question of laboratory operations is proven by the insistence on the virtues and qualities of the alchemist. The latter must be healthy, humble, patient, chaste. He must be of free spirit and in harmony with his work. He must both work and meditate. For our purposes, it will be unnecessary to summarize the other phases of the opus. Let us note, however, the paradoxical character of the materia prima and of the philosopher's stone. According to the alchemists, they both are to be found everywhere and under all forms, and they are designated by hundreds of terms. To cite only a text of 1526, the stone is familiar to all men, both young and old. It is found in the country, in the village, and in the town, in all things created by God, yet it is despised by all. Rich and poor handle it every day. It is thrown into the street by servant maids. Children play with it. Yet no one prizes it, though, next to the human soul, it is the most beautiful and most precious thing upon earth and has power to pull down kings and princes. Nevertheless, it is esteemed the vilest and meanest of earthly things. It is truly a question of a secret language that is at once both the expression of experiences otherwise intransmissible by the medium of ordinary language and the cryptic communication of the hidden meaning of symbols. The stone makes possible the identification of opposites. It purifies and perfects the metals. It is the Arabic alchemists who imparted therapeutic virtues to the stone, and it is through the intermediary of Arabic alchemy that the concept of the elixir vitae arrived in the West. Roger Bacon speaks of a medicine which makes the impurities and all the corruptions of the most base metal disappear, and which can prolong human life for several centuries. According to Arnold of Villanova, the stone cures all ills and makes the old young. As regards the process for the transmutation of metals into gold, attested already in Chinese alchemy, it accelerates the temporal rhythm and thus contributes to the work of nature. As is written in the Summa Perfectionis, an alchemical work of the 16th century, what nature cannot perfect in a vast space of time, we can achieve in a short space of time by our art. The same idea is expounded by Ben Jonson in his play The Alchemist, Act Two, Scene Two. The alchemist affirms that lead and other metals would be gold if they had time. And another character adds, and that our art doth further. In other words, the alchemist substitutes himself for time. The principles of traditional alchemy, that is, the growth of minerals, the transmutation of metals, the elixir, and the obligation to secrecy, 
were not contested in the period of the Renaissance and the Reformation. However, the horizon of medieval alchemy was modified under the impact of Neoplatonism and Hermeticism. The certitude that alchemy can second the work of nature received a Christological significance. The alchemists now affirmed that just as Christ had redeemed humanity by his death and resurrection, so the Opus Alchemicum could assure the redemption of nature. Heinrich Kuhnrath, a celebrated hermeticist of the 16th century, identified the philosopher's stone with Jesus Christ, the son of the macrocosm. He thought, besides, that the discovery of the stone would unveil the true nature of the macrocosm in the same way that Christ had brought spiritual plenitude to man, that is, to the microcosm. The conviction that the Opus Alchemicum could save both man and nature prolonged the nostalgia for a radical renovatio, a nostalgia which had haunted Western Christianity since Joachim of Floris. Carl Jung devoted a tremendous amount of attention to the writings of the alchemists in the latter part of his life. These efforts merely added fuel to the fire of those who had branded him eccentric because of his interest in the psychology of religion, which is, after all, a fundamental aspect of human psychology and culture. Even the Pulitzer Prize-winning sociologist Ernest Becker, who was favorably and critically predisposed to the claims of psychoanalytic thought, stated, I can't see that all Jung's tomes on alchemy added one bit to the weight of his psychoanalytic insight. Many people, some with an outstanding academic reputation, have cautioned me against discussing Jung, warned me about even mentioning his name in the academic context. This warning was presented, no doubt, with my best professional interests in mind. I once read a story about Paul Ricoeur, the French philosopher and literary critic, which may be apocryphal. Someone mentioned the specific relevance of Jung's work to Ricoeur's field of inquiry. Ricoeur replied, I haven't read Jung. He's on the index in France. This ironical response was, of course, made in reference to the Catholic Index of Books, a listing of readings forbidden to devout followers of that creed. I have never met someone, however, who actually understood what Jung was talking about and who was simultaneously able to provide valid criticism of his ideas. Often, Jung's notions are confused with Freud's, insofar as Freud's are understood. Freud himself certainly did not make this error. It was, in fact, Freud's apprehension of Jung's profound and irreconcilable differences in thought that led to their professional and private alienation. Jung's ideas are not primarily Freudian. He places little emphasis on sexuality or on the role of past trauma in determining present mental state. He rejected the idea of the Oedipus complex. Actually, he reinterpreted that complex in a much more compelling and complete manner. He viewed religion not as mere neurotic defense against anxiety, but as a profoundly important means of adaptation. It is much more accurate to view him as an intellectual descendant of Goethe and Nietzsche, 
influenced in his development, to be sure, by the idea of the unconscious, than as a Freudian disciple. Jung, in fact, spent much of his life attempting to answer and answering Nietzsche's questions about morality. Furthermore, Jung was not a mystic. He merely delved into areas that were forbidden because of their religious association to devout scientists and was possessed of sufficient intellect and education to do so. It is incorrect and evidence of one-sided thinking to label him pejoratively. It is incorrect because Jung was, in fact, an experimental scientist of no small ability, particularly at the beginning of his career. Many of the word association tests he helped pioneer are still used extensively with some technical modifications and little recognition of original source in the fields of cognitive neuroscience and social psychology. The boxing and filing away of Jung is one-sided because experimental procedure constitutes at best one pole of the bipolar scientific process. A well-designed experiment allows for the testing of ideas when it is undertaken properly. However, ideas to test must be generated, a truism often overlooked in the course of modern academic education. It was at this endeavor that Jung excelled. Some might object. His ideas cannot be tested, but they have been. The card classification experiment by Jerome Bruner, described previously, provides a classic and striking example, although the results of that experiment have not generally been interpreted from the perspective of Jung's thought. Furthermore, one axis of the personality dichotomy he proposed, that of introversion slash extroversion, has stood up well, appears robust in the face of repeated experimental inquiry. In addition, the unconscious is clearly full of complexes, although now they go by different names. Perhaps we will become sophisticated enough in the future in our ability to experiment and in our understanding of Jung's ideas to test more of them. Jung was primarily a physician, which meant that he was concerned with the promotion of mental health. He believed that such promotion was impossible perhaps even counterproductive, in the absence of comprehension of value and of the processes by which value is generated. His investigation into the nature of value led him to consideration of fantasy and myth. The world of value is a world in imagination, the internalized result of the historically determined social contract that provides fixed determination of affective and motivational significance. Apprehension of this fact led Jung to analysis of the fantasies generated by his seriously disturbed psychiatric patients and comparison of these fantasies, which he was unwilling to define a priori as meaningless, with ideas generated by religious mystics from a variety of primitive and sophisticated cultures, with a vast body of literary productions in the Eastern and Western traditions, with imagery generated in dreams, more than 25,000 dreams by his own estimate, and by diligent investigation into alchemical symbolism. This cross-cultural and multidisciplinary approach to the problem of value seems at least empirical, if not experimental, 
and remains eminently reasonable in the absence of more appropriate methodology. In fact, the prominent sociobiologist E. O. Wilson has recently recommended adoption of such a cross-level analytical procedure in the guise of consilience to unite the natural sciences, the social sciences, and the humanities. Jung's ideas, particularly his alchemical ideas, have been inappropriately, unfairly, and dangerously ignored. They have been ignored because his students were outside the academic mainstream, and, perhaps, because they were frequently women. They have been ignored because they present a serious challenge, an absolutely fatal challenge, in my estimation, to Freudian psychoanalytic preconceptions. They have been overlooked because Jung took the frightening and mysterious statements of religion seriously. He presumed that such statements, which guided human adaptation successfully for thousands of years, had some significance, some meaning. Jung's ideas have remained unexamined because psychology, the youngest, most rational, and most deterministic of sciences, is most afraid of religion. They have been ignored additionally because they are difficult to understand from the conceptual and affective points of view. What the ideas are is hard to specify initially. What they signify, once understood, is emotionally challenging. Jung essentially described the nature of the language of imagination, that ancient process, of narrative, of the episodic memory system which he thought of, fundamentally, as the collective unconscious. Comprehension of this language is perhaps more difficult than development of fluency in a foreign language, because such comprehension necessarily and inevitably alters modern moral presumption. It is this latter point that constitutes the core rationale for dismissal of Jung's ideas. Jung was no less revolutionary from the moral perspective than Martin Luther. He may reasonably be considered a figure in the tradition of Luther. Furthermore, moral revolution is the most dreadfully uncomfortable of all intrapsychic and social processes. It is the frightening content of Jung's thought that has led most fundamentally to its rejection. Jung essentially discovered, in the course of his analysis of alchemy, the nature of the general human pattern of adaptation and the characteristic expression of that pattern in fantasy and affect. Specific representation of this pattern in the narrower domain of scientific endeavor was outlined much later to much wider comprehension and academic acclaim by the philosopher Thomas Kuhn. Jung's student Marie-Louise von Franz, who provided a cogent summary of Jung's complex alchemical ideas, states, If you read the history of the development of chemistry, and particularly of physics, you will see that even exact natural sciences, such as chemistry and physics, could not and still cannot avoid basing their thought systems on certain hypotheses. In classical physics up to the end of the 18th century, one of the working hypotheses arrived at either unconsciously or half-consciously was that space had three dimensions, an idea which was never questioned. 
The fact was always accepted, and perspective drawings of physical events, diagrams, or experiments were always in accordance with that theory. Only when this theory is abandoned does one wonder how such a thing could have ever been believed. How did one come by such an idea? Why were we so caught that nobody ever doubted or even discussed the matter? It was accepted as a self-evident fact, but what was at the root of it? Johannes Kepler, one of the fathers of modern or classical physics, said that naturally space must have three dimensions because of the trinity. So our readiness to believe that space has three dimensions is a more recent offspring of the Christian Trinitarian idea. Further, until now, the European scientific mind has been possessed by the idea of causality, an idea hitherto accepted without question. Everything was causal, and the scientific attitude was that investigations should be made with that premise in mind, for there must be a rational cause for everything. If something appeared to be irrational, it was believed that its cause was not yet known. Why were we so dominated by that idea? One of the chief fathers of natural sciences, and a great protagonist of the absoluteness of the idea of causality, was the French philosopher Descartes, and he based his belief on the immutability of God. The doctrine of this immutability of God is one of the Christian tenets. The divinity is unchanging. There must be no internal contradictions in God or new ideas or conceptions. That is the basis of the idea of causality. From the time of Descartes onwards, this seemed so self-evident to all physicists that there was no question about it. Science had merely to investigate the causes, and we still believe this. If something falls down, then one must find out why. The wind must have blown it, or something like that, and if no reason is discovered, I am sure that half of you will say that we do not yet know the cause, but that there must be one. Our archetypal prejudices are so strong that one cannot defend oneself against them. They just catch us. The late physicist Professor Wolfgang Pauli frequently demonstrated the extent to which modern physical sciences are in a way rooted in archetypal ideas. For instance, the idea of causality as formulated by Descartes is responsible for enormous progress in the investigation of light, of biological phenomena, and so on, but that thing which promotes knowledge becomes its prison. Great discoveries in natural sciences are generally due to the appearance of a new archetypal model by which reality can be described. That usually precedes big developments for there is now a model which enables a much fuller explanation than was hitherto possible. So science has progressed. But still, any model becomes a cage, for if one comes across phenomena difficult to explain, then instead of being adaptable and saying that the phenomena do not conform to the model and that a new hypothesis must be found, one clings to one's hypotheses with a kind of emotional conviction and cannot be objective. Why shouldn't there be more than three dimensions? Why not investigate and see where we get? But that people could not do. I remember a very good illustration given by one of Pauli's pupils. You know that the theory of ether played a great role in the 17th and 18th centuries. 
namely that there was a kind of great air-like pneuma in the cosmos in which light existed, etc. One day when a physicist at a congress proved that the theory of ether was quite unnecessary, an old man with a white beard got up and in the quavering voice said, if ether does not exist, then everything is gone. This old man had unconsciously projected his idea of God into ether. Ether was his God, and if he did not have that, then there was nothing left. The man was naive enough to speak of his ideas, but all natural scientists have ultimate models of reality in which they believe, just like the Holy Ghost. It is a question of belief, not of science, and therefore something which cannot be discussed, and people get excited and fanatical if you present them with a fact which does not fit the frame. Von Franz also states, So, the archetype is the promoter of ideas and is also responsible for the emotional restrictions which prevent the renunciation of earlier theories. It is really only a detail or specific aspect of what happens everywhere in life, for we could not recognize anything without projection, but it is also the main obstacle to the truth. If one meets an unknown woman, it is not possible to make contact without projecting something. You must make a hypothesis, which of course is done quite unconsciously. The woman is elderly and is probably a kind of mother figure and a normal human being, etc. You make assumptions and then you have a bridge. When you know the person better, then many earlier assumptions must be discarded and you must admit that your conclusions were incorrect. Unless this is done, then you are hampered in your contact. At first, one has to project, or there is no contact. But then one should be able to correct the projection, and it is the same not only as regards human beings, but everything else also. The projection apparatus must of necessity work in us. Nothing can even be seen without the unconscious projection factor. That is why, according to Indian philosophy, the whole of reality is a projection, which it is, in a subjective manner of speaking. The idea of projection, that is, the idea that systems of thought have unconscious axioms, is clearly related to the notion of paradigmatic thinking, as outlined by Kuhn to wide general acclaim. Jung described the psychological consequences of paradigmatic thinking in great detail as well. He first posed the question, what happens to the paradigmatic representational structure in someone's mind, in the human psyche, in human society, when anomalous information of revolutionary import is finally accepted as valid? And then answered it. My summary. What happens has a pattern. The pattern has a biological, even genetic, basis, which finds its expression in fantasy. Such fantasy provides subject material for myth and religion. The propositions of myth and religion, in turn, help guide and stabilize revolutionary human adaptation. These answers have been rejected prematurely and without sufficient consideration. Part 2. Where is what you most want to be found? 
where you are least likely to look. In Sterquilinus Invenitur, in filth it will be found, as cited by Carl Jung. King Arthur's knights sit at a round table because they are all equal. They set off to look for the Holy Grail, which is a symbol of salvation, container of the nourishing blood of Christ, keeper of redemption. Each knight leaves on his quest individually. Each knight enters the forest to begin his search at the point that looks darkest to him. When I was about halfway through writing this manuscript, I went to visit my sister-in-law and her family. She had a son, my nephew, who was about five years old, very verbal and intelligent. He was deeply immersed in a pretend world and liked to dress up as a knight with a plastic helmet and sword. He was happy during the day, to all appearances, but did not sleep well and had been having nightmares for some time. He would regularly scream for his mum in the middle of the night and appeared quite agitated by whatever was going on in his imagination. I asked him one morning after he had woken up what he had dreamed about. He told me in the presence of his family that dwarf-like beaked creatures who came up to his knees had been jumping up at him and biting him. Each creature was covered with hair and grease and had a cross shaved in the hair on the top of its head. The dream also featured a dragon who breathed fire. After the dragon exhaled, the fire turned into the dwarves who multiplied endlessly with each breath. He told the dream in a very serious voice to his parents and to my wife and me, and we were shocked by its graphic imagery and horror. The dream occurred at a transition point in my nephew's life. He was leaving his mother to go to kindergarten and was joining the social world. The dragon, of course, served as symbol for the source of fear itself, the unknown, the Ouroboros, while the dwarves were individual things to be afraid of particular manifestations of the general unknown. I asked him, What could you do about this dragon? He said, without hesitation and with considerable excitement, I would take my dad and we would go after the dragon. I would jump on its head and poke out its eyes with my sword. Then I would go down its throat to where the fire came out. I would cut out the box the fire came from and make a shield from it. I thought this was a remarkable answer. He had reproduced an archaic hero myth in perfect form. The idea of making a shield from the firebox was nothing short of brilliant. This gave him the power of the dragon to use against the dragon. His nightmares ended then and did not return, even though he had been suffering from them almost every night for a number of months. I asked his mother about his dreams more than a year later, and she reported no further disturbance. The little boy, guided by his imagination, adopted identification with the hero and faced his worst nightmare. If we are to thrive individually and socially, each of us must do the same. Our great technological power makes the consequences of our individual errors and weaknesses increasingly serious. If we wish to continually expand our power, we must also continually expand our wisdom. 
This is, unfortunately, a terrible thing to ask. Insterquilinus invenitur. In filth it will be found. This is perhaps the prime alchemical dictum. What you need most is always to be found where you least wish to look. This is really a matter of definition. The more profound the error, the more difficult the revolution, the more fear and uncertainty released as a consequence of restructuring. The things that are most informative are also frequently most painful. Under such circumstances, it is easy to run away. The act of running away, however, transforms the ambivalent unknown into that which is too terrifying to face. Acceptance of anomalous information brings terror and possibility, revolution and transformation. Rejection of unbearable fact stifles adaptation and strangles life. We choose one path or another at every decision point in our lives and emerge as the sum total of our choices. In rejecting our errors, we gain short-term security, but throw away our identity with the process that allows us to transcend our weaknesses and tolerate our painfully limited lives. There was a good man who owned a vineyard. He leased it to tenant farmers so that they might work it and he might collect the produce from them. He sent his servant so that the tenants might give him the produce of the vineyard. They seized his servant and beat him, all but killing him. The servant went back and told his master. The master said, perhaps they did not recognize him. He sent another servant. The tenants beat this one as well. Then the owner sent his son and said, perhaps they will show respect to my son. Because the tenants knew that it was he who was heir to the vineyard, they seized him and killed him. Let him who has ears hear. Jesus said, show me the stone which the builders have rejected. That one is the cornerstone. The Gospel of Thomas. Face what you reject, accept what you refuse to acknowledge, and you will find the treasure that the dragon guards. The Material World as Archaic Locus of the Unknown Carl Jung states, All these myth pictures represent a drama of the human psyche on the further side of consciousness, showing man as both the one to be redeemed and the redeemer. The first formulation is Christian, the second alchemical. In the first case, man attributes the need of redemption to himself and leaves the work of redemption to the autonomous divine figure. In the latter case, man takes upon himself the redeeming opus and attributes the state of suffering and consequent need of redemption to the anima mundi, world spirit, imprisoned in matter. Alchemy can be most simply understood as the attempt to produce the philosopher's stone, the lapis philosophorum. The lapis philosophorum had the ability to turn base metals into gold. Furthermore, it conferred upon its bearer immortal life, spiritual peace, and good health. The alchemical procedure stretched some 20 centuries in the West, coming to an end with Newton. 
it had an equally lengthy and elaborate history in the Orient. It is impossible to understand the essence of alchemical thought or its relevance for modern psychology without entering into the categorical system of the alchemist. The stuff with which the alchemist worked, although bearing the same name, it was only vaguely akin to our modern matter. There are many ways to cut the world up, and they are not necessarily commensurate. Much of what the alchemist considered thing, we would not think of as characteristic of the objective world. Furthermore, what he considered unitary, we would think of as evidently diverse. There are two major reasons for this difference in opinion. First, the categorical system used to parse up the world derives its nature in large part from the nature of the end toward which activity is currently devoted. The ends pursued by the alchemist were by no means identical to those considered worthwhile today. In large part, they were much more comprehensive, the perfection of nature. In addition, they were contaminated with psychological formulations, the redemption of corrupt matter. Insofar as the alchemical procedure was psychological, that is, driven by apprehension of an ideal state, the categories it produced were evaluative. Phenomena that emerge in the course of goal-directed behavior are classified most fundamentally with regard to their relevance or irrelevance to that end. Those that are relevant are further discriminated into those that are useful and good and those that exist as impediments and are bad. Since our behavior is motivated, since it serves to regulate our emotions, it is very difficult to construct a classification system whose elements are devoid of evaluative significance. It is only since the emergence of strict empirical methodology that such construction has been made possible. This means that pre-experimental systems of classification such as those employed in the alchemical procedure include evaluative appraisal, even when they consist of terms such as matter or gold that appear familiar to us. Second, it seems that the more poorly something has been explored, the broader the category used to encapsulate or describe it. As exploration proceeds, finer discrimination becomes possible. Apparently, unitary things fall apart in this manner into their previously implicit constituent elements, as nature is carved at her joints. We no longer consider the traditional four elements of the world, for example, fire, water, earth, and air, either as irreducible elements or even as categories extant at the same level of analysis. Further investigation has reconfigured our systems of classification. We have transformed the comparatively simple material world of our ancestors into something much more complex, useful, and diverse. We believe, in consequence, that the primordial elements of the world were not really elements at all, failing to realize that an element is a tool and that an incompletely fashioned tool is still much better than no tool at all. The overwhelmingly evaluative dimension of pre-experimental classification in combination with relatively poor capacity for discrimination produced archaic categories of great generality, 
from the modern perspective. We can identify many discriminable phenomena within each of these categories as a consequence of the centuries of increasingly efficient exploration that separate us from our medieval and pre-medieval forebears. Our viewpoint has in fact changed to such a degree that our use of the same word is in many cases only a historical accident. We might therefore make this discussion more concrete by first examining the matter of the alchemist and by comparing it to what we think of as matter. Alchemical matter was the stuff of which experience was made, and more, the stuff of which the experiencing creature was made. This primal element was something much more akin to information in the modern sense, or to Tao from the Oriental perspective. Something like matter in the phrases that matters, that makes a difference, that we care about, that cannot be ignored, that is informative, or what is the matter? We derive information as a consequence of our exploratory behavior undertaken in the unknown, attending to things that matter. From that information, we build ourselves, our behaviors and schemas of representation, and the world as experienced. As Jean Piaget states, Knowledge does not begin in the eye, and it does not begin in the object. It begins in the interactions. Then there is a reciprocal and simultaneous construction of the subject on the one hand and the object on the other. The primal element of alchemy was something embedded or implicit in the world, something often hidden that could emerge unexpectedly. This unexpected emergence can be regarded as the capacity of the object to transcend its categorical representation, to become something new as a consequence of its position in a new situation or its reaction to a new exploratory procedure. This new thing announces itself first in terms of the affect it generates. Failure of the previously understood previously categorized, thing to behave as predicted elicits emotion from the observer. This is the spirit of transformation making itself manifest. The emotion so generated, fear slash hope, may produce exploratory behavior designed to specify the new properties of the transforming object. These new properties then become incorporated into the previous categorization system, become attributes now seen as in the same class. Alternatively, the newly transformed substance may have to shift categories because it is now seen as so much different from what it was. The former case constitutes a normal shift, of course, the latter is revolutionary. When a novel thing is being explored and placed within a certain socio-historically determined context, it has been classified in accordance with its currently evident motivational status—promise, threat, satisfaction, punishment, or none of the above—as determined situationally. This is evidently true with regards to the classification system of the individual animal, who cannot derive an empirical model of reality because it cannot communicate but equally true with regard to man whose capacity for abstraction has blurred the essential nature and purpose of classification. 
what a thing is is most fundamentally its motivational significance, its relevance for the attainment of some affectively significant goal. Classification of the phenomenon, which means determination of how to act in its presence, restricts its motivational significance to a particular domain, most frequently to nothing, to irrelevance. Nonetheless, it is a fact that the phenomenon itself which is of infinite complexity, is always capable of transcending its representation. This capacity for transcendence is a property of the object, a property of experience from the phenomenological viewpoint, but can be exploited by the activity of man. The alchemists regarded the transcendent capacity of the object, that is, the capacity of the familiar and explored in one context, to become the unfamiliar and unexplored in another as a spirit embedded in matter. Jung cites Basilius Valentinus, an ancient alchemical authority. The earth as material is not a dead body, but is inhabited by a spirit that is its life and soul. All created things, minerals included, draw their strength from the earth spirit. This spirit is life, it is nourished by the stars, and it gives nourishment to all the living things it shelters in its womb. Through the spirit received from on high, the earth hatches the minerals in her womb as the mother, her unborn child. This invisible spirit is like the reflection in a mirror, intangible. Yet it is at the same time the root of all the substances necessary to the alchemical process or arising therefrom. The spirit that inhabits the earth was Mercurius, the shapeshifter, the reflected image of God in matter from the alchemical viewpoint, who both guided the alchemical process and was released by the activities of the alchemist. Mercurius was the spirit that made the matter investigated by the adept interesting, compelling, and interest is a spirit that moves from place to place as knowledge changes and grows. Mercurius is the incarnation of transformation, the Ouroboros, who existed and did not exist as the most primal deity before the creation of things, before the division of the world into subject and object, spirit and matter, known and unknown. The Ouroboros is, of course, the tail-eater, the dragon of chaos, an image of the embeddedness of the totality of things across time in the particular manifest phenomenon. The image of the spirit Mercurius was an intimation of the infinite potential trapped in every particular aspect of experience. Identification of this potential, that is, its classification, posed a constant problem to the medieval imagination, as Jung points out. All through the Middle Ages, Mercurius was the object of much puzzled speculation on the part of the natural philosophers. Sometimes he was a ministering and helpful spirit, an assistant, comrade, or familiar, and sometimes the service or service fugitivus, the fugitive slave or stag, an elusive, deceptive, teasing goblin who drove the alchemists to despair and had many of his attributes in common with the devil. For instance, he is dragon, lion, eagle, raven, to mention only the most important of them. 
In the alchemical hierarchy of gods, Mercurius comes lowest as prima materia and highest as lapis philosophorum. The spiritus mercurialis is the alchemist's guide, Hermes psychopompus, and their tempter. He is their good luck and their rune. The alchemists conflated what we would think of as matter with what we might regard as the unknown. This is hardly surprising, since matter was the unknown to the pre-scientific mind and is still something that retains much of its mystery today. As the unknown, matter possessed an attraction which was the affective valence of what had not yet been explored. The ability of the unknown to attract provided impetus for its personification as spirit, as that which motivates or directs. Matter, even in its modern form, can easily revert to the unknown, even under modern conditions, can then exercise a similar force, that of a stimulus, on the modern psyche. It does so, for example, when it manifests something anomalous, some unforeseen property as a consequence of its placement in a new context or its subjection to more creative exploration. The anomalous manifestation, the recurrence of the unknown, comes inevitably to attract increasing interest, or, conversely, attracts attempts to avoid, suppress, or otherwise conjure it out of existence. All objects, even explored objects, retain their connection with that from which all things are made, even after they have been boxed and filed away, been categorized, in theory, once and for all. Take a rat, for example, who has habituated to a cage, who has explored the cage and become comfortable there. If a small object, say an iron block, is dropped in front of it, it will first freeze and then cautiously begin to investigate. The rat will use its capacity for motoric action to interact with the block, smelling it, looking at it, scratching it, perhaps gnawing it, to assess the motivational significance of the novel object. For the rat, limited by its lack of communicative ability to its own experience, limited by its restricted animal nature to fundamental processes of exploration, the block soon becomes irrelevant. It signifies no danger in the course of interaction. It cannot be eaten. It is useless as nesting material. The block, therefore, becomes its lack of relevant properties for the no longer exploratory rat and will henceforth be ignored. The process of exploration-predicated classification has eliminated the motivational significance of the novel, as is its function. From the mythic perspective, this is replacement of the great mother by the great father, replacement of ambivalent threat and promise by determinant valence, including irrelevance. The sensory properties of the block, which are the relevant features of the object as far as the spirit of scientific inquiry extends, have no intrinsic importance for the rat except as they signify something of affective import. This more fundamental mode of thought, concerned with behavioral adaptation to circumstance, is how man thought prior to the formalization of scientific methodology, and how man thinks still insofar as he values and acts. The general case is, however, more complex. 
Homo sapiens is capable of observing a practically infinite series of novel properties emerge from the particular object because he is capable of apprehending an object from a virtually unlimited number of points of perspective, spatial and temporal. Or it might be considered equivalently that the object is something so complex that it can manifest entirely different properties merely in consequence of being viewed from alternative perspectives. The iron block was once, of its own accord, something qualitatively different from what it is now and will be something different once again in the future. In the earliest stages of its existence, considered as an independent object, the exemplary block was part of an undifferentiated totality prior to the beginning of all things. Then, the interplay of four fundamental forces. Then, simple hydrogen coalescing into a star. Then, matter transformed by gravity and nuclear processes. Then, a stone on Earth. Finally, something transformed by man with a still uncompleted and equally extensive developmental history before it. This transformation of the object is temporality itself, the manifestation of Tao, the flux of being. The capacity of human beings to apprehend variable spatial-temporal spans turns the object into something more complex than its mere present appearance. This increase in complexity is compounded by the extended active capacity for exploration, also typical of our species. What is an iron block for man? Shaped, a spear, and therefore food and death and security. Suspended, a pendulum, key to detection of the Earth's rotation. Dropped, significant of gravity reduced to its constituent particles with sufficient patience and ingenuity, representative of molecular and atomic structure, a part like the whole. The question might be more accurately presented. What is an iron block not for man? The pre-experimental mind of the alchemist, pondering the nature of the prima materia, the fundamental constituent element of experience, easily became possessed by intimations of the infinite possibility of matter, of the boundless significance of the finite object, of the endless utility of the object and its inexhaustible capacity to reveal, become, the unknown. When an object is explored, its motivational significance is constrained, generally as a consequence of the specific goal-directed nature of the exploratory process inevitably predicated upon a specific hypothesis. Is this thing good for a particular function, but not for any number of other potential functions? The question in mind, implicit or explicitly formulated, determines in part the answer given by the object. The object is always capable of superseding the constraint in some unpredictable fashion. This infinite potential finds its symbolic expression in the self-devouring serpent, the mercurial spirit of transformation, the spirit that draws interest inexorably to itself. While considering these ideas, I dreamed that a small object was traveling above the surface of the Atlantic Ocean. It moved along in the center of a procession of four immense hurricanes, 
configured as a square divided into quadrants, one hurricane per quadrant, tracked by satellites, monitored carefully and apprehensively by scientists manning the latest in meteorological equipment in stations all over the world. The dream scene shifted. The object, a sphere of about eight inches in diameter, was now contained and exhibited in a small glass display case like that found in a museum. The case itself was in a small room with no visible exit or entry points. The American president, symbol of social order, and the crippled physicist Stephen Hawking, representative of scientific knowledge and of disembodied rationality, were in the room with the object. One of them described the features of the room. Its walls were seven feet thick and made of some impervious substance, titanium dioxide, which sounded impressive in the context of the dream. These walls were designed to permanently contain the object. I wasn't in the room, although I was there as an observer like the audience in a movie. The object in the display case appeared alive. It was moving and distorting its shape like a chrysalis or a cocoon in its later stages of development. At one point, it transformed itself into something resembling a meerschaum pipe. Then it reformed itself into a sphere and shot out through one wall of the case and the room, leaving two perfectly round, smooth holes, one in the case and the other in the wall. It left with no effort whatsoever, as if the barriers designed to restrain its movement were of no consequence once the decision had been made. The object was an image of God, the Uruburic serpent embodied in matter, powerful enough to require the accompaniment of four hurricanes as attendants. The room was a classification system, something designed by the most powerful representatives of the social and scientific worlds to constrain the mysterious phenomenon. The object transformed itself into a pipe in reference to the famous painting by Magritte of a pipe, entitled, in translation, This is not a pipe. The map is not the territory. The representation, not the phenomenon. The capacity of the object to escape, at will, referred to the eternal transcendence of the phenomenal world, of its infinite capacity to unexpectedly supersede its representation, scientific and mythic. I dreamed much later, perhaps after a year, of a man suspended, equidistant from the floor, ceiling, and walls in a cubic room, about arm's length from each. The surfaces of the cube curved inward toward the man, as if the room was constructed of the intersection of six spheres. All surfaces of the cube remained at the same distance from the man, regardless of his pattern of movement. If he walked forward, the cube moved forward with him. If he walked backward, the cube moved backward at precisely the same rate, with no discontinuity whatsoever. The surfaces themselves were covered with circular patterns about four inches in diameter, inscribed within squares of about the same size. Out of the center of each circle dangled the tip of a reptile's tail. The man could reach in any direction, grasp a tail, and pull it out of the surface into the room.
This dream referred to the capacity of man to voluntarily pull the future into the present. The serpent, evident only in the form of his tail, was the Ouroboros embedded implicitly in the phenomenal world. The potential for the emergence of something new was present in every direction the man could look inside the cube. He could determine what aspect of being would reveal itself as a consequence of his voluntary action.